Welcome to another Trademark Belfast podcast. To those who are new to our podcast, Trademark Belfast is the anti-sectarian unit of the Irish Labour Movement. That's not all we do, but that's our core work. We also do a line in political economy, education, and a little bit on the solidarity economy. And today we're talking to um, Sean Byers of Trademark, who didn't attend last week's podcast. I'm going to chastise him now because apparently he was too busy, but I'll, I'll say nothing else about that. And of course, we're very pleased to welcome Emma Clancy to this week's podcast. Emma Clancy uh, is currently working as an advisor for Martin Sherdewan, um, a member of Dailinka, the left party in, in the European Parliament, uh, who are, of course, part of the GUI NGL, um, the United Left Nordic Green Left bloc within the European Parliament, which is broadly speaking a kind of gaggle of left social democrats and communists that goes from the Portuguese Communist parties to Syriza and Sinn Fein. Um, we're very pleased to have her here today. Those who are interested in following Emma Clancy's work. She has her own blog, emmaclancy.com, and she's also on the editorial board for the irishbroadleft.com, which offers really good analysis on uh, Ireland, European, and international left politics. We're really pleased to have you, Emma. Thanks very much for giving us your time. Oh, thanks for the invite. Uh, one of the reasons we've got Emma on is um, over the last few years, there's a real gap or lacuna, as Sean might say, on the, on the left in terms of uh, criticisms of the European Union or even analysis of the European Union. And particularly amongst the Europhilic um, left or the, even the EU critical left, there's a kind of a lack of forensic analysis of its treaties and its rules and its technicalities. And I have to say, Emma's writing gives that kind of forensic analysis, which allows us to delve into that opaque kind of monstrosity that is the European Union at times and see what it, what it looks like from the inside and see how it works. So we're really pleased to have her here today and talk to her about some of those um, treaties and also the response of the European Union to the COVID crisis, which hasn't covered itself in glory. I suppose that's the first um, question we'll kick off with them, if you don't mind. I read recently there was about eight, there was a, um, a survey in Italy that 88% of Italians are really unhappy with the EU's response to the crisis as it emerged in Italy. And the EU is now a bit concerned, is it, about kind of that Eurosceptic backlash? Because it, it, um, when the southern states asked for solidarity in the face of the crisis, did they get it? Well, no, they they certainly didn't. Um, it's it's interesting that you that you talk about the results of that poll because um, I saw another. Uh, it's it's basically a, an EU propaganda arm, but it's called the the EU disinformation service, um, and they had published uh, information saying that um, uh, an indication of Chinese disinformation in the EU was that Italians were more supportive of the Chinese response to Italy's health crisis than they were to the EU. And this was just absurd because um, this was not as a result of disinformation, it was as a result of China actually providing concrete solidarity when Italy needed it. Um, whereas the EU just, just shut down, it was every member state for itself it was every, uh, you know, th there were interceptions of um, personal protective equipment and vital healthcare equipment by several member states who wanted to keep it um, to themselves. There were there there is actually an EU um, instrument in place which is was specifically designed for events like this, um, where you know a, a kind of procurement process where. Uh, the EU could centrally control um, distribution of vital equipment in a crisis to the member states who needed it the most. This has just been something on paper and it wasn't actually put into practice 
um, when it was needed. So that was the very first initial response. But then you also had um, probably more uh, visible rejection of the, um, the southern states appeal for solidarity, particularly by Italy and Spain, where they asked for economic support through the form of Eurobonds. Um, and that was just essentially, you know, kind of viciously shut down by um, particularly the Dutch, but also, you know, the whole, the whole frugal four um, group of nations and with the support at that time of Germany. So you had the Southern states asking for solidarity because they're, they were the worst impacted by the virus, but they're also the worst affected by the most dis disadvantaged by the architecture of the Eurozone. They asked for solidarity and they had the doors slammed shut in their faces. Yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't great, was it, Sean, the, the response of the European Union? It kind of spoke to the idea of there being a periphery and a, a kind of metropolitan centre to the, to the EU, you know, different powers of, of uh, knowing the EU. What, what's your kind of um, take, take on that? I think those of us who have watched the European Union close enough over the past number of years will, will know that the idea of pan-European solidarity is a myth and has been exposed as such by this crisis and it's really no substitute for the type of international socialist solidarity that, um, that, that we witnessed um, coming from, from the likes of China. Um, and Cuba. There are Cuban doctors who went to Italy but Europeans yeah. didn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it, the the southern states, particularly Spain, Italy, and potentially Portugal, have been thrown to the wolves once again. Um, I think Ireland's role in this has been interesting. Ireland, of course, signed the letter um, calling for uh, for a Corona bond response, and um, sort of a debt instrument that were that would allow states to to share the burden and and take some of the pressure off the states that were in trouble. So Ireland signed it, and this is this is typical of the Irish states' role in Europe. Um, rhetorically, it will position itself amongst the struggling states of Europe and on the side of reform. But then, in practice, when it comes to it, um, they'll do more to uphold the ideology and the economic interests that govern the system. Um, so, like a lot of the reforms that were being discussed were linked to corporate tax reforms and of course Ireland being one of the biggest tax havens in Europe um, decided that that's something that they didn't want to, to support. So I think it's, it's, it's telling not only um, in terms of the, the structure of the European Union, it is in fact a, a conglomerate of different national capitals looking after their own interests but also the, the, the role that Ireland plays in that system. I always said that um, people tried to, when people ask you what's Ireland's role in the EU, I always say, you know, you used to go to those Christmas dinners when you were about a teenager, about 16, 17, but you still had to sit at the kids' table. But you're looking at the big table with all the big adults. That's Ireland in the EU. It's a, it's a teenager sitting kind of at the kids' table and wants to be somewhere else and they won't let it, um, which is why they'll do what they're told all the time. Um, you mentioned there, there was a couple of points that's really important in terms of EU's response to the coronavirus. One is that that call for some sort of common debt instrument. I want to go there in a minute. But the other one that happened fairly quickly was the suspension of the stability and growth pact rules. Um, and I know, Emma, you wrote a brilliant report um, called Discipline and Punish, uh, is it, you know, the end of the road for the stability and growth pact. And the stability and growth pact is one of those treaties in the EU, for me anyway, that really reveals its true nature. 
and the purpose of the EU. Now, I read it from cover to cover. Sean only skim read it, by the way. He told me that. He didn't get into it. He, just did, it. he did what he normally uh, does. The reverse is true, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he, read, he read the introduction and the recommendations, which is typical for him, by the way. He's fly-by-night character. But, I mean, I, I remember the... I don't remember the 97 when it was brought in, but I do remember when it was, when it was reinvented in 2012, post-2008. Um, I remember in Ireland it was called the Fiscal Compact Treaty, and there was a big campaign by some of the left unions, not many now, I have to say, but by mandate in the night against the Fiscal Compact Treaty. Um, and it's a great read, and it offers that kind of analysis that we need. And if, you're sitting on, if you were sitting on the fence as a lefty about the nature of the European Union, that report and its detail kind of would push you off the fence, and you'd have to take a position, I think, you said in the report, one of the quotes that kind of jumped out at me was that the, the, the treaty actively promotes the transfer of wealth from labour to capital. And I felt like that kind of summed up the entire nature of the EU to me. But um, one of the other things you talked about in a lot of detail, which is relevant to the current crisis, is the idea that in that period that you looked at, uh, e the EU Commission recommended on 63 different occasions, um, the country should either cut make cuts to their health service or indeed privatise aspects of their health service, which in the face of the pandemic, seems a little bit sociopathic. Um, but what, the, what else does the Stability and Growth Pact do? Why did you write that report on it? And uh, why is it important for us on the left to understand it's, it, what it does in the EU? Well, we published this report in February, which was you know, before the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic really hit the rest of the world outside of China. Um, and the main reason we wrote it was because there is actually, uh, you know, at that point and still today, there is a scheduled review of the macroeconomic uh, framework of the European Union um, happening within the institutions. So, you know, the, the parliamentarians like the MEPs from the left actually have a rare um, institutional opportunity to put forward their alternative views about the Stability and Growth Pact um, throughout this year. But I think obviously that, that has been kind of really shaken up by the experience of the pandemic. Um, and the massive amounts of public debt that have been added to, you know, the national accounts during this period will have, you know, a, a very influential um, role in the future of the Stability and Growth Pact. So for people who aren't aware, the Stability and Growth Pact came out of the Maastricht Treaty and it was then, um, you know, the basis of the euro as a currency. Um, so this process throughout the 1990s where the euro was being founded and member states were individually committing to join the euro, um, there was a, a, an agreement in place um, that still exists today where everyone who wanted to join the euro had to commit to keeping their national debt to GDP ratio to 60% or lower and their annual budget deficit, annual government deficit, um, to 3% uh, of GDP or lower. So this, this has been in place, it was in place um, throughout the 2000s and it was temporarily weakened because Germany and France repeatedly breached the rules in the early 2000s. Um, and then you had the, obviously, the global financial crisis and the ensuing um, sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone. But coming out of that process, instead of having, having a recognition that these rules actually had a deflationary impact um, and fueled the crisis and prolonged and worsened the recession in the EU, you had a strengthening of the stability and growth pact rules. 
So you had the creation of the macroeconomic imbalance procedure, which basically um, allowed the European Commission, this was put in place in 2011, it allowed the European Commission to develop a tailored IMF style structural adjustment program for every single member state of the Eurozone. So you have these commission technocrats in Brussels, sometimes visiting the, the country in question, and looking at their economy and saying, you're paying your workers, to, your public sector workers too much, your uh, healthcare spending is too high, your, uh, you need to privatize this, this and this, and you need to, generally the, 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 um, the priorities that we identified in this report were top of them all was to increase the pension age, increase the retirement age. Um, the second one was to reduce spending on healthcare or to privatize or outside outsource out health services. Um, that was demanded by the commission 63 times during 2011 to 2018 of separate member states. Then you had other um, other uh, demands aimed at suppressing wage growth. So the the main the main purpose that we wanted to put a left kind of analysis into this debate because it's not only a problem that the stability and growth pact uh, prevents investment or you know prevents economic growth. It's also specifically very clearly designed to transfer wealth from labour to capital in through those priorities that I outlined. So that was the kind of um, we, we wanted to reveal the true nature of the Stability and Growth Pact rules. Yeah, it was, um, it, it's a fascinating read and, it's a, it, and it goes to the heart of the nature of the EU. Sean, it was it's funny because Emma mentioned there that I remember speaking at a conference in Germany once and you texted me that morning because I was under attack for being a supposed legisleteer at this conference. And uh, what, was it, what was it Michelle Barnier said that morning, Sean, when he was asked why France and Germany can break the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact all the time? Yeah, he said, but because it's France. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's one of the things that the Emma's report highlights. You know, it's it's arbitrary and ideological. There's no sound basis for their for their implementation. It's politically biased. Uh, um, you compare the treatment of Italy and Greece, for example, to the treatment of France. Um, there's no clear criteria or rationale applied. To how how those countries are treated, other than their position within the the geopolitic, um, and as Emma has has outlined, it's there's the post crash reforms that were introduced in two thousand and eleven were purposely designed uh, to shift wealth from labour to capital, and of course that had a hugely damaging impact on uh, workers on. Uh, people's living standards on public services and social welfare and, and everything under the sun. Um, but it's also counterproductive. The rules are counterproductive even to their own stated objectives of economic growth and, and public debt reduction. Um, it's not just France, but, but nearly every country. I think there's only one exception. Emma might correct me, but there's one exception um, to to every country actually breaking the or breaching the fiscal rules over the past decade. Um, and now we're entering into a period where not a single member state is going to be able to run the, the surplus necessary to, to keep their debt to GDP ratios in check and abide by the, the fiscal rules should they be reimposed. 
So the stability and growth packs under pressure from its own internal contradictions, really. It's Absolutely. under pressure, it's under criticism, and you know, there's a choice that the governments have uh, in front of them now as to whether to invest in their people, invest in their public services, invest in the real economy, or uh, return to a situation of abiding by these arbitrary rules for the sake of it. You wanted to come in there, Emma, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think um, the, the amount of public debt that the member states of the EU are going to emerge from the coronavirus pandemic lockdowns with um, is going to be probably on average around 100% of GDP or over. For Greece, that's going to be over 200%. The problem is not only that it's completely unrealistic to stick with these ridiculous, uh, you know, goals in general, but it's also, um, you know, it's, it's not only about the, say, for example, a member state of the, of the EU has its 3% or, or below annual deficit. This is like the situation that Italy has, um, has operated along over the past decade. It's, it's pretty much always had, um, had a balanced annual budget, but the, the, the overhang of debt from whether it was the 2008 crisis or the sovereign debt crisis or now this coronavirus crisis, it gives the commission this crazy amount of power over the national budget of the member states. And I think people don't even realize this, but when, when say for example, in, in Dublin, you have the national budget being voted on or the, the state budget being voted on in October, um, that, that has gone through basically a year's worth process um, of being uh, surveilled, altered, agreed upon, you know, in Brussels. So, first of all, the government in Dublin has to actually present its proposed budget to the Commission. The Commission will go and say, well, no, you're spending too much here, you're spending too much there, make all these changes. It goes back to the government. It goes through this whole process of being... Um, reformed by neoliberals in Brussels before it even gets to be put to the actual vote of democratically elected representatives in the government. So that's very dangerous ground you're on there, Emma. You're highlighting the anti-democratic nature of the European Union. And, uh, <laughs> but I suppose when you when you uh, when you decide that pooling sovereignty is the best political way forward, that's a, that's an inevitable consequence, isn't it, of giving over that national sovereignty to this supranational body? I wanted to move on briefly because. The response to the crisis from the from the European Union has also been fascinating, and from from the EU itself and from the ECB, and quite different responses, aren't they? In some ways, I know you wrote a piece there, Europe sticking plaster. Um, we had we had John Barry on, Professor John Barry from the Green Party, recently talking about the Green New Deal in Europe, and it was we we all agreed that it was like a colossal exercise in greenwashing. But that, but actually, in fact, most of the money promised, which wasn't that much really, in comparison to the money that was used to bail out the banks in two thousand eight most of the money didn't really exist or were kind of vague future promises of mobilization of private capital. You've done similar work now looking at the European uh, recovery package and it kind of tells a similar story, Emma. Yeah, definitely. And for me, I've been working in Brussels now for around five years. Um, and this is, you know, just typical, like everyone is used to it now. Um, it's got to the point where even the European Parliament has kind of, has in a resolution warned the European Commission not to use quote unquote financial wizardry because quote unquote the credibility of the EU is at stake. So everybody knows now that you can't trust the figures that the Commission puts forward because they rely on so-called leveraging 
a trick which they perfected under the leadership of um, the former commission president, Jean-Claude Jean Juncker. His younger plan was an investment plan to try to get the EU out of the, um, the slump following the global financial crisis. And it was basically, it consisted of putting up a very small amount of EU funds, you know, and they weren't even new funds. They were, like you say, taken from, you know, other areas where they make a bit of saving in this area of the budget, put together a little package. And then they say, we will guarantee private investors that they will not, you know, that they won't make a loss if they invest a certain amount of money into this project. So you're using public money to, uh, you know, to safeguard um, private risk taking by private investors. Um, and then the commission is taking the total sum of money that ends up being invested and saying this is EU funds, when actually it's the majority of it is from the private sector. But more importantly, over the past 10 years and over the next 10 years, we're not in a situation where the private sector is actually investing at all. So the commission is coming up with these fantasy figures um, that they honestly, they just bear no uh, real, they don't have a real relationship with reality. Um, so to take the recovery package as an example, the commission is going around and in, in their speeches announcing it, they, they have said that the total amount of EU funds that are going into the recovery package for the coronavirus pandemic is 2.4 trillion euros. This is just completely absurd. I mean, for a start, 1.1 trillion of that figure, so almost half, they're, they're, it's just the EU's normal budget. So it's the EU's normal budget, um, the long-term budget from 2021 to 2027, and it's actually going to be lower, than, a lower amount of funding um, than what already exists, and a lower amount of funding than what the commission itself actually proposed just two years ago for the long-term budget. Then you have um, a big chunk of it, so half, half a trillion, 500 billion of it is, uh, or, or more, um, is just loans. So the European Commission is going to loan money, or you know, borrow money, sorry, on the um, financial markets and lend it to member states. But member and states- those, those loans no doubt come with conditions. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing is they, like everything in the EU comes with the conditions of the, um, but the, they don't even need to create new conditions because the conditions are already uh, so extreme and so built into um, the European semester, the Stability and Growth Pact rules. Um, all of that framework is still there and it's all legally enshrined. So the commission can go around saying these, these loans don't have any conditions attached, but actually they have the underlying you know, for austerity framework of the EU, and um, those conditions are always attached. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the real amount that we're talking about is borrowing 500, 500 billion euros on the financial market um, as a common debt instrument. And so that's the newsworthy, significant aspect. Um, but, but basically that money is going, it's not gonna be backed up by the ECB and it's gonna have to be repaid by member states in the future. Um, and only 360, or sorry, 340 billion of euros of that amount is going to actually um, be spent. You know, new, new money. It's going to. It's not going to be loans. So, so you, say in the, you said in your report that the recovery package amounts to about 0.56 percent of the EU's 2019 GDP over a four-year period. Sean, it doesn't inspire much confidence or hope, considering we're looking at we're kind of facing down a a major depression that the EU is, is using less than 1% of a, 
you know, to, for, as part of its recovery funds. Yeah, 0.5% of EU GDP over four years is a paltry sum. Um, I think Emma's, Emma's article mentions as well that EU GDP is projected to contract this year by at, at least 7%. I'm not so optimistic. Um, scenario. Um, so in, in that light, it, it looks pretty paltry. I was looking at the ECB staff projections. They produce their monthly staff projections off the main sort of macroeconomic indicators and where things are headed. They've already revised down their um, projections and they're saying that things are looking much worse than, than they initially thought. Um, and their severe scenario that they're highlighting is looking really fucking severe. Um, we're talking about not a 7% contraction of GDP, but something in the region of 15% uh, this year. Um, so in that light, you know, 300, 310 billion isn't, isn't going to cut it, uh, particularly for those uh, struggling uh, southern peripheral states. The other thing to, to mention, and, and Emma's, Emma's touched on it, is that the, the European Commission, is, of course, has chosen, has opted to... Uh, issue its euro bond uh, and turn to the the uh, capital markets. Um, so they're choosing to, to subject themselves to the vagaries and the the sort of discipline of of those markets when they have the ECB sitting there. Um, that that is an option that they have. They could turn to the ECB and and get the ECB to fund this program. But they had the ideological blinkers on, and it just shows you how. How far things need to need to go when it comes yeah, to you? You've, you've kind of you're leading us on to the next stage of the, of the chat, and that was going to be to Emma to talk a little bit about that about the pandemic emergency purchase program and the role of the ECB in all of this. And let's agree to call the pandemic emergency purchase program PEP, will we, from now on? Because it's too fucking long. <laughs> Tell us about PEP, Emma. Um, yeah, well, the the ECB's actions in response to this coronavirus crisis have been very, very different from the ECB's actions in response to the 2008 crisis and the sovereign debt crisis. In my opinion, if you look at the actions of the ECB between the period 2008 to 2012, the ECB was, you know, one of the primary actual uh, causes of the um, of the sovereign debt crisis because it deliberately withheld credit, um, vital credit that countries needed, um, forcing them off a cliff edge basically until they agreed to horrific conditions. Um, you had an internal power struggle within the ECB and within the EU um, and internationally. So you've had the, the Americans basically saying to the EU, we need you to actually step up and you know not destroy the global economy by acting like such dickheads as you did in 2008. 9, 10, 11, um, and that was particularly, uh, you could see the results of that, um, and, you know, Obama's personal interventions with um, Chancellor Merkel where in 2012 where she actually said Germany would support the so-called whatever it takes program proposed by Mario Draghi. So you have this, uh, you, you've had a quantitative easing program that's been in place for several years now. Um, it's you know, it's supposed to have propped up the economy and tried to um, pr promote inflation. Uh, you know, they, they've never come near getting up to 2%, which is their aim. Um, but now, now you've had the, uh, the PEP program is, um, it's joint corporate and public sector purchases by the ECB. And 
it's basically a way around the no bailout clause um, that you have within the EU treaty, which prevents direct monetary financing of governments by their central banks or the ECB. Um, so the PEP program was initially 750 billion euro, and that, that was very significant because you know, you could have had an immediate uh, replay of the sovereign debt crisis because we have, you know, huge levels of public debt in, in Greece and in Italy and Spain, which were particularly affected. Um, so the ECB's actions have prevented that so far. They've already announced another 600 billion top up to that program. Um, so it, it is significant, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of ensuring that member states can continue to borrow on the markets cheaply and, and that they're not forced into a cliff edge situation when it comes to, um, you know, sovereign bond yields. But the problem is that these member states are then going to be left up, left with these huge national debt accounts coming out of the crisis. And as soon as the suspended stability and growth pact rules are reapplied, they come back into play um, as soon as the crisis abates somewhat then they're going to be left with, you know, at least over 100%, up to 200% national debt. And they're going to be trapped in this permanent austerity spiral where the commission can just tell, you know, intervene in every area of their economy and just yeah. grind them down to, to dirt. This, uh, this bond, buying, bond buying program, Sean, is slightly different though, isn't it, from previous QE programs in the, in the EU? In what way is it sort of slightly different? Well... <laughs> It's different in scale, you know. It's 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 much bigger. But I mean, there's a few things um, that concern me about it. Um, it's not going to be enough. Uh, is the is the first concern I would have. Um, it's been increased, as Emma said, from seven hundred fifty billion to one point three trillion, and it's been extended to June twenty twenty one at least. Um, I think it's going to be increased and extended again. Um, because it's not going to resolve the the problems facing the in, in indebted states um, in the southern periphery in particular. Um, I think there's there's a real danger attached to the corporate sector uh, side of the of the program in that there's no conditions attached. You know, the the ECB pretends that its its single mandate is to uh, manage inflation. And it denies that it has an economic and wider economic and political role. Now we've we've all seen that that's an absolute myth. Um, but you know, within their the narrow terms that they've they that they subscribe to, that they have uh, decided not to attach any conditions to the corporate sector uh, side of the program. So there's no guarantee that the money will go to into the real economy uh, and into investment in 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 people and, and place um, rather than the asset price inflation that, that we saw during the last quantitative easing program. There's no climate um, uh, conditionality attached to, to the corporate sector uh, program and we've already seen uh, large fossil fuel co companies pile in. Um, they see this as, you know, they know the writing's on the wall. Um, they're seeing this as an opportunity to boost their their stock prices to, to funnel a, a bit more money to their to their shareholders while whilst they can. But the public sector side of things is is interesting and is significant as Emma has said. It, it is pushed down borrowing costs um for for states. Um and 
it's it's enabled them to borrow, you know, in in the medium term anyway. Um, the the risk is that um, the ECB ends up dumping these uh, bond purchases onto the capital markets, um, and in, in which case the those states would be subject to those, you know, the discipline at the market. <laughs> yeah, the you know those disciplinary influences. You always hear about the markets and how the markets can discipline states, and that's that's a real risk for for the countries who are struggling with with debt. But there are other options, aren't there, Emma, in terms of what could happen to that debt? Let's get down to the nub of this, because this is where um, an awful lot of people don't understand what the ECB is doing. In fact, what national banks also do in, in, in countries which are in charge of, of their own sovereign currency. What, what could happen to that debt and what are some of the proposals you're looking at? Well, what we're calling for in the GUI NGL group um, is one. I just I just want to touch on what Sean was saying about um, the the corporate sector purchasing program because that's actually hugely important um, it's causing housing crises across the european union and um, this asset asset price inflation which is you know mm -hmm. going into housing searching for some kind of profitable investment um, and even now the center left and even certain parties on the right are actually now realizing that banning dividends banning bonuses and banning share buybacks are actually crucial to ensure that this money from the ECB doesn't go straight into the pockets of the wealthiest people. It actually makes it to the real economy. Um, and so certain governments are, are trying to do that. And, um, you know, within the European Parliament, we're at every opportunity, we're trying to, to, put, um, to put that uh, demand. And sometimes it gets supported, sometimes it doesn't. The other, you know, the more fundamental demands that we're, we're talking about are, you know, uh, like, a, a total rethink of the role of the ECB. So the ECB has been modeled on the German Bundesbank um, as a, you know, as a central, uh, an independent central bank um, that can't be kind of uh, influenced by, by any of the EU institutions or governments. That's just a nonsense. Of course, central banks always act politically um, and they're, you know, they're never independent. Um, but the the main one of the one of the main problems within the European Union setup, I, I would say the two main problems are the Stability and Growth Pact on the one hand and the so-called no bailout clause within the treaty on the other. Um, so you have problems, as Sean said, with the ECB's mandate, which is only supposed to focus on um, price stability, inflation. Um, whereas you have, for example, the Federal Reserve is supposed to also is supposed to look at inflation and employment. Um, the ECBs is a purely kind of neoliberal monetarist uh, institution or setup where um, it's not even in their mandate that they can actually try to support the economy outside of yeah. the question of um, keeping inflation low. Uh, but yeah, you have this ban on direct monetary financing and that's within the treaty of the EU itself. So the, the, the ECB's uh, public sector purchasing programs are a way to get around that. But it, it's, you know, it, it's inefficient and it provides benefits to the private sector that, that they shouldn't actually receive. Um, it makes much more sense for the ECB to actually just directly fund governments in order to make the um, spending that they need to respond to this crisis. And that's what's, uh, you know, that's what's happening in Britain with the, with the, with the central bank there. That's what's happening um, to a certain extent in the United States. 
Uh, but in the because of the setup of you know the monetary union, um, we've we've been told for decades that you know that that can't happen in Europe. But actually, you know, we're looking at how even within the existing setup where we have you know an ECB within a monetary union, how we can actually apply some of the theories of modern monetary theory, some of those principles. Um, to the setup in the in the EU, that would absolutely require a change in the mandate of the ECB and uh, a repeal of the no no bailout clause. Um, but so what we're talking about is, for example, the simplest thing to do is for the ECB to continue um, these public public sector purchases, so to purchase government debt in an unlimited way, um, and then to simply cancel that debt. Or as the Spanish government has proposed for a program to, uh, for the ECB to hold that debt in perpetuity, so to hold perpetual debt. Um, and we're also looking at proposal, a proposal that has been made previously by modern monetary theory economists um, for the ECB to credit the national accounts of member states of the Eurozone um, on a per capita basis in order to directly fund, cut out any middleman, um, to directly fund uh, boost the government account so that they can actually spend money on the real economy. It's amazing, isn't it, to see what we some would have termed a kind of lunatic fringe economic theory becoming central policy now, not just within the European Union, but within nation states across the globe. But it's very counterintuitive for people. We've been sort of teaching this for a while now about teaching people that governments can just spend, central banks can just create money out of nothing into the economy. The very fact that that's being suggested at the heart of the ECB, the heart of the Eurozone, European Union, is, is amazing to me. But, um, you know, it, it makes sense, of course. I mean, it's like owing yourself. The idea you said of the, the political independence of central banks is laughable. I mean, I, I read yeah. recently that Japan's debt to GDP ratio is 250%. Half of that debt is owned by Japan to itself. Now, as you said, it can either hold that in perpetuity, which it does do, or it could cancel it. So it's just, there's an accounting trick at the heart of all yeah. of this that makes the debt look worse than it is. Sean, it's amazing, isn't it, to see the direct monetary finance being talked about, even? Yeah, um, I mean, the interventions so far are significant, but they're not going to resolve the fundamental problems, contradictions at the heart of, heart of the Eurozone. And these issues are going to crop up. They're going to arise again. Um, issues such as debt cancellation um, and, and the idea of direct monetary financing. As Emma said, like, you know, the way the ECB does it at the moment is, is one just one step short of of direct monetary finance and they they purchase the debt on the secondary markets um which as emma said is gives a a, a slice to to the mm -hmm. brokers in the financial sector um, whereas they could just cut out the middleman and do it themselves just do it directly and then you know the the danger is as i said that, that the ecb may eventually decide to dump the the debt that it's holding onto the under the markets and, and those, those countries at risk when it could just hold on to it I mean, and keep up the pretense. That's what the Bank of England does. Mm. The Bank of England funds the British government um, and keeps up the pretense that they're eventually going to call the debt in. Um, but they never do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's been quite obvious on the British television, at least, the, the, the propaganda has begun about how much do we need to borrow on the markets? How are we going to pay for this? There's going to have to be cuts and austerity. And it's a fiction. It's a lie. The British government's choice to borrow on markets is a political choice. They actually mm -hmm. don't have to do that. And in other ways, they're not doing that. And um, not everyone's happy about all of this. Are they, I mean, I know it doesn't relate necessarily to PEP, but the German uh, Constitutional Court 
recently. It kind of went past a lot of people. I noticed it in the paper there a while ago. Um, and it was quite a significant court ruling in Germany, wasn't it, re relating to quantitative ease? I think it was a previous QE program. Yep. Um, yeah, so it, it happened on the 5th of May, and it's the, the highest court in Germany, the, the German Constitutional Court, made a ruling that the, um, that the German, the Bundesbank's participation in the, um, in the QE program that the EU had initiated since around, I don't know, 2015 or so, um, was illegal. And they said that it was illegal because the ECB had failed to, uh, you know, failed to take into account the impact of its monetary policies on the real economy. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, it, was so, it was hilarious for me because, you know, the, the kind of, the German neoliberals and ordo liberals um, and the, you know, the followers of Friedrich Hayek were the ones who had initiated this case and they're, they're the people who say, you know, that above all else, the central bank must be independent. But here they were demanding, you know, um, a, a basically their own government to intervene um, in the in the policy making process of the ECB. Um, so they're they're angry that uh, that the kind of monetarist um, model of central banking has been, you know, quietly kind of disregarded by the ECB and by the, the Federal Reserve and other central banks. Um, since the crisis, even it is a big, it is a big shift, that isn't it? It is a big shift in in, in the in the ECB's um, outlook. Yeah, on, on absolutely. Money. And I mean, you have you have uh, you know a kind of quiet acknowledgement now within central banking circles that the role of the central bank is much more than um, controlling the money supply, which is yeah. what. So you you have a very deep. Um, prejudice you know prejudice you have a very deep uh, ideological conviction rooted into uh, the European political parties member states institutions that um, inflation is you know the root of all evil and um, it's the worst thing that can possibly happen this comes from not only the you know Friedmanite kind of monetarism views but also the experience of Germany the Weimar Republic and things like that and not can I throw in Zimbabwe at this point yeah Zimbabwe always for Zimbabwe and so you have these uh, you, you have this kind of uh, anxiety about the um, quantitative easing program among the ultra-right and the libertarians and the, the neoliberals um, about you know any kind of QE program uh, and so it, it's interesting because the, you know, the German government basically stayed silent on it. They didn't come out and say, we support, we side with the EU, we side with the ECJ, the, the European Court of Justice. There was a hilarious line in the German Constitutional Court's um, ruling where they said, we, we dis we're disregarding the ECJ's ruling because it was, quote, unquote, incomprehensible. They just, <laughs> they just said... The you know the, the supposedly highest court in the um, in the European Union had an incomprehensible um, finding, so we're just going to disregard it. Uh, so so yeah, sorry to interrupt you. It's, it's amazing though, isn't it? I think that um, without us noticing, but well, you've noticed. We, we're we're reading what you've written, so we're noticing that <laughs> you've noticed yeah. that there's huge tectonic plates are shifting in the heart of the EU, particularly the role as you said that that shift in the ECB's attitude. It's as big as a shift potentially has happened in the 1970s from Keynesianism to monetarism and now we're moving out of monetarism back into something else. 
the very fact yeah. we're having a conversation about direct monetary finance. Sean, does this offer any hope or any um, kind of, I suppose, targets for the left in Europe? This big shift. And now we know that neoliberalism is dying from within because of these contradictions that Emma's outlined for us. Um, is there a hope for any kind of left strategy in Europe that can use these contradictions to our benefit, considering generally how weak we are? Yeah, well, it's interesting to note the, uh, that the, the German government recognises that they need to go further uh, in order to save the system. <laughs> you know, that's, that's their objective, mm -hmm. to preserve the, the, the Eurozone and the European Union project. They need to go further, um, but they have to try to reconcile that with the internal domestic pressures that they're, that they're facing. Um, obviously, the Germans would not be prepared or aren't prepared to go as far as the, the left uh, demands, but um, there is a there is an opportunity because the 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 common sense the the common sense the logic the the orthodox ideological orthodoxy is starting to to break down. Um, and I think a lot of this will well, I think the left needs to be um, looking at some of the demands that that Emma has been raising at idea of debt cancellation, the idea of direct monetary financing. Um, and a lot of this will hinge around as well the uh, fiscal rules. Um, it's you know the world's not going to come to an end if uh, if a country runs uh, has a debt to GDP ratio of one hundred fifty or two hundred percent. Well, as we, as we said before, Japan's yeah. sitting on two hundred fifty and seems to be doing all right. Yeah, uh, it's not going to come to an end if they if they have that debt to GDP ratio. Um, particularly if they're a high-income country, and particularly if the debt is held by the likes of a DCB or another investor with a strong public mandate. Um, but the, the world could come to an end if governments choose not to invest in their people, to invest in the radical state-led transformation that is needed to, to combat the threat of, of climate breakdown. Um, is, that, is that radical intervention possible, Emma, within the European Union? Let's talk about Remain and reform. Let's talk about Remain and rebel briefly. Yeah. Um, my personal view is that uh, the EU is not, it, it's, it's not going to be reformed um, from within. It's not, it's not capable of being reformed for a number of uh, institutional and political reasons and balance of force reasons. Um, but I think that the question of... Uh, you know, that that poses for left strategy and the next steps um, is very complicated because I don't think we can, you know, for example, in the Irish, the entire country, I don't think you can just say um, as a leftist, well, you know, first step, we need to exit the EU because mm -hmm. people just don't understand that that's not where their level of consciousness is at. Um, there is there is an attachment to the EU and to the euro as a currency. Um, there is the the tainting of the whole idea of of national sovereignty with the kind of racists who led the um the the brexit campaign um and there is yeah there's a general i i think it's a mistake to fall into that in or out um arg argument as the first step it, it may come it you know will um gradually progressively come to that point but it's not it shouldn't be the starting point for the left because you know it's it's also a dead end I mean, my view is that at the moment, what we need to be doing is educating people about um, the role of, of central banks and, you know, and, and monetary financing and how do we actually get out of this immediate crisis. And as Sean said, 
the other immediate crisis that we're facing of climate transformation. Um, and, you know, there, there's huge educational work to be done uh, at all levels of society in, in every country in the European Union. Um, then, then we get onto a point of where we have the left in power and we do have, you know, center left governments in power um, or alliance governments in power in some countries. Hopefully we, we move towards more um, in the coming years. And then I think absolutely the strategy of, of strategic disobedience of governments in power saying, no, we are absolutely not going to follow the EU rules of the Stability and Growth Pact if and when they're reimposed because they're going to destroy people's lives and they're going to destroy the economy and they're going to prevent us from being able to achieve the climate transformation. Um, and then you come into conflict with the EU institutions, but through that process, you convince people to support that government or support that demand. Mm. And you actually build strength in that way through that particular, through the site of confrontation. Um, and then, yeah, the, the other thing that we actually need to do in the meantime, um, there's been a massive uh, lack of preparation, I would say, by, pe by policy people and leftists, even people who believe, at, you know, as I do, that there is no chance of reforming the EU. Um, that, you know, that there has been a, a lack of preparatory work done about how do you deal with the massive, you know, quite horrific uh, consequences you would face um, in the markets, for example, in terms of cap capital flight and all, all the punitive things that capital can do to a renegade country, to, you know, to a rebel state that says, you know, we're not going to go along with this anymore. What kind of international alliances can you build? What kind of, um, you know, detailed kind of uh, alternative industrial strategies can you put in place? And there's, there's so much work to be done at the political education level, at the political policy preparation level, and at the international uh, left kind of strategic level of bringing people together um, into a Plan C program. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Plan C, right, grabbing that. Um, Sean, I'm going to carry on with that Star Wars analogy about the rebel state and uh, strategic <laughs> disobedience. Yeah, you know, that, that, that is a reality, isn't it, for any countries that want to leave this off at this stage it's, 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 it's almost impossible isn't it for a country to just opt out of this without as Emma has outlined the kind of huge massive um, kind of depression that would follow and, and societal breakdown but the left still has to have a conversation beyond in or out as she said yeah I mean as, as things stand that it, the eurozone is likely to collapse before the majority of states are, are, are likely to uh, vote to, to dismantle it um, and certainly that's the case in the likes of Ireland. Um, there, there's a strong sort of emotional attachment to, to, the, to the EU, which is, which is for historical and for, and for contemporary reasons. Um, and we've seen with the Brexit, um, the Brexit scenario, that, that it's the difficulty of, of you know, putting forward a, a left-wing critique uh, of the EU and popularizing popularizing it. Um, the left was sort of slow out of the blocks um, during the Brexit um, process and by the time it actually got into that sort of political education work and that, that discussion that needed to be had, the, the argument was already lost on, on, on right-wing grounds. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done in educating people in terms of how the European Union actually works, what is possible within the EU, what isn't possible within the EU, and, and 
linking that to a, a political strategy where the left is strong, where the left has power to, to pushing those rules to, to breaking point. Yeah, Emma, I'll let you have the last word on this. One of the things everyone's mentioned really here is the importance of political education based on good research and good analysis. But there are some on the left who don't even want to engage in that political education because it's critical of European institutions. But if we're going to be honest with each other, if we're going to be fair, we have to really, as you've done, and that's why I'm glad you're doing it, you know, a real forensic analysis of those institutions and those treaties. And, and once you've had that, once you've had that education, it might change the way you look upon it. Yeah, well, one thing that I've noticed in the past five years that I've been um, working here within these institutions within Brussels is that uh, the more the left shies away from having these conversations openly and engaging in this political education, the more ground they're just surrendering um, to the far right. And to, yeah, and so you have, uh, you have these simple kind of simplistic analyses of the European Union um, presented by the far right, but they tap into very real grievances. So the lack of, you know, mm. democratic representation and democratic rights. Obviously, you know, the impact of neoliberalism, the impact of the, the horrendous free trade agreements that the EU um, signs up to. Uh, you have you have very real grievances that are being exploited by the far right with their very simplistic and you know, um, leaning towards fascistic uh, proposals for or analyses and proposals. And then you have, you know, the left trying to be, uh, you know, just, just kind of surrendering this ground and saying, well, you know, we can't possibly criticize the EU because that means we're racists and fascists, which is just ludicrous because the, the EU is harming working people across the entire union. Um, that I would say that's its purpose. Like it, it's as like Wolfgang Streak described it, it's a liberalizing machine. Um, you can have certain, you know, nice little uh, thrills attached to the European Union. You can have, you know, you can have certain good food quality or whatever. Um, but you can do that on, on a basis of international cooperation that's voluntary and that doesn't strip all the powers away from locally, you know, democratically represented people. Um, so, yeah, I think that we really do need to look at the role of uh, the nation state and how it enables um, democratic participation and the expression of democracy as opposed to um, the suppression of democracy within the supranational organizations and there's no um, no greater example of that suppression of democracy than the European Union construct. Um, I think I'm gonna have to let those be the last words of today because me, yeah. me or Sean can better that to <laughs> the analysis of the EU and to do so would just be embarrassing for the pair of us, Sean. So I think we'll leave Emma with those last words, all right? And we're definitely going to get her back on again. I hope you enjoyed yeah. listening to that. I know I did, and I could listen on. Um, Sean, thanks very much for your contributions as well. Emma, see you again. We owe you pints. Um, <laughs> sure. Either Dublin or Brussels, all right? Absolutely. So take, care. take care. Cheers. It's on.